Hopefully by now you can understand my accent. Uh, in, in this section I'm going to talk a bit more about contraceptives. Contraceptives have been around for a long time. The earliest record of them that we have comes from the ancient Egyptians. They mixed crocodile dung with honey and placed it in the vagina to act as a spermicide. Modern contraceptives aren't quite as messy. Um, they're easy to access and work well and most fertile adults have never known a time when this wasn't the case. You may be surprised to know that contraceptive use was opposed by the Protestant Church until 1930. And some denominations, most notably the Roman Catholic Church, are still opposed. There was a law banning contraceptive use for married couples in Connecticut that was only overthrown by the Supreme Court in 1960. So the first question we need to ask is, is it morally permissible for Christians to use modern contraceptives at all, or is it just something, one of these technological things we've just taken for granted? Sex is a normal part of Christian marriage. So in order to understand the Bible's guidance on contraception, we need to look at its teaching on the purpose of marriage and the place of sex within marriage. And to understand this, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden and see how God created us. We've already read this morning uh, Genesis 1.27, where God made us in his own image. From this, we learn that we are made to be relational creatures, living in relationship with God and other human beings. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and Eve and told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God gave us a task, but he also set boundaries. In Genesis 2, God commanded the man not to eat from the tree of good and evil. So we're taught that we're dependent creatures. And we're, we're created to live within the limits that God has set uh, for us. So this is central to the idea of Christian freedom. Even though when we have children, we are co-creators with God, we are unlike God in that we're not omniscient and we continue to observe the limits he has put in place. And while still in the Garden of Eden, God set forth the pattern for marriage, creating Eve to be a partner for Adam. And in chapter 2, verse 24, we're told, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they will become one flesh. The new one flesh state is expressed in the act of sexual intercourse between the husband and wife. The Hebrew word for the act of intercourse means to know. So the Bible doesn't consider this to be a merely physical act, but the giving of oneself that allows the growth of an intimate relationship within the marriage. There's no doubt that becoming one flesh is a very important part of marriage. In fact, we're told both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that sexual intercourse is a marital duty. Christians recognise two primary purposes um, for sex in marriage, the unitive and the procreative. 
Unitive refers to the expressing and strengthening of the love and companionship between husband and wife and the mutual enjoyment that sex provides. This is reflected in Genesis 2.24 with the becoming one flesh. So we can see um, the unitive aspect of sex in Bible passages that describe the delight of the hus- that the husband and wife can find in each other, uh, which isn't in the context um, of the having of children. So we, we see that the husband and wife um, can delight in sexual love. Proverbs 5 calls on the husband to delight himself in his wife. And we have in the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, Sol- that's what you call it? What do you call it here? Song of Songs? Um, we have a whole book of the Bible that celebrates the delights of sexual love without any talk of having children. But sex in marriage obviously also has a procreative purpose for the begetting of children and the perpetuating of the human race as we were commanded in 128. Now it's fairly obvious that the arrival of children is expected as a result of sexual intercourse because as the husband and wife come together, so do the egg and sperm, resulting in a child for whom both are responsible. So children are intended to be part of the blessing of marriage and are in themselves a blessing from God. In Psalm 127, we're told, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. After the fall, man was still made in the image of God, as we know from Genesis 9-6, but he became mortal, and so the challenge of filling the earth became more challenging. However, God's purposes always prevail, and we're told in Genesis 3 that Adam gave Eve a name which meant mother of all living, so the generations were to continue. The Old Testament ends with God's reminder through Malachi that he desires to see godly offspring as a result of marriage, chapter 2, verse 15. Now, although the task of filling the world with stewards of the earth is an important task, is it more important than the relationship between the husband and wife? This is the question that has divided the church in terms of the role of contraceptives. So remember, we have the two primary purposes of marriage, the unitive and the procreative. In 1968, Pope Paul VI issued a decree called Humani Vitae. I'm not a Latin scholar. Anyway, there was a papal encyclical, and it decreed that each and every act of marital sexual intercourse must of necessity retain its relationship to procreation. He proclaimed that both the unitive meaning and the procreative meaning of marriage should be realised in each and every sexual act. This means the couple must always be open to the potential of conceiving a child whenever they have sex. Even when Catholic couples are having IVF, uh, they put a little pinprick in the end of the condom to collect the sperm to make sure they keep to the rules. Now his motive was good. He was acknowledging that every life depends on God, but he was opening up the idea that marital sex with only the unitive intention is wrong. 
This led to the Roman Catholic teaching that it, there is no place for the use of contraceptives in marriage. However, there was a cryptic me, uh, mention of natural family planning methods, uh, which uh, has been taken by most Catholics to mean that those methods are okay, and I'll mention what they are in a moment if you're not familiar. But in contrast to the Roman Catholic view, Protestant church leaders taught that the unitive and procreative purposes of marital sex should apply to the overall marriage relationship, but not necessarily to each and every act of intercourse. And this does leave room for contraceptive use. At the same time, God does appear to tell us in the Bible that we should consider, should consider children to be the norm in marriage, though it's sadly not always possible. But does that mean that every couple has to have the maximum number of children? Well, even in the Old Testament, we can see that that wasn't God's purpose. For one thing, women are created so that we're not fertile all the time. Once a month, there's a period when we're infertile. And after the menopause, we're infertile permanently. Some couples are created infertile. Furthermore, in the New Testament, Discussions of marriage include the possibility that some will choose to renounce marriage for the sake of the gospel. This establishes the point that God does not require all human beings to reproduce, as well as establishing the honour of the single person's vocation. But it doesn't clarify what married couples should do. While the world lasts, someone has to raise up the generations needed to rule and care for it. Well, the one example of contraceptive use in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 38, the story of Onan. He was supposed to provide offspring for his deceased brother uh, by having intercourse with his brother's widow, Tamar. However, when he did have sex with Tamar, he dropped his semen on the ground so she didn't become pregnant. This is commonly known as the withdrawal technique. He just used her for his own pleasure. God put Onan to death, and this example is sometimes quoted as evidence that God doesn't approve of contraceptives, but I think that's an, an unlikely meaning. We know that contraceptives were in use and are easily available in Hebrew times. We know from the ancient Egyptians they were being used. There are references uh, to contraceptives in the Talmud, um, the Jewish um, teachings, um, so you would have thought if they were forbidden that their use would be explicitly prohibited in the Bible. In places like Leviticus 20 where there's a whole list of sexual crimes but no mention of contraceptives, you'd particularly think it would be mentioned if the punishment for contraceptive use was to be put to death. Um, it's much more likely that Onan's punishment was due to his failure to honour his dead brother and his disobedience to God's command. So this suggests that the Bible doesn't expressly forbid contraceptive use, but are, contra on the, you know, are they actually endorsed? Well, in biblical ethics, as we've just seen, motives are as important to God as our actions. He's interested in our hearts as well as our behaviour. And in view of the Bible's high regard for children, if we do decide to use contraceptives to avoid pregnancy, we must have good intentions. 
It's not a decision to be made lightly or for arbitrary or selfish reasons. I think contraceptives may have a place when used for the timing of children. It gives newly married couples the opportunity to strengthen their relationship. I can see a few young children uh, in the audience and I'm sure that some of you know how hard it can be. It's very tiring. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're told we need to provide for our families, which means we need the resources. These are not just financial resources, but also emotional, physical and spiritual resources. For example, some friends of mine sadly found out that their their toddler has a life-threatening condition. They have two other children under five. And at the moment, they just think that coping with the illness of their toddler plus having to look after two other young children that that they just don't have the resources it would take uh, to look after another child at the moment. So for them, um, I think that use of contraceptives would be um, a very wise choice. It would certainly be ethical for them at the moment. But what about not even starting a family? Chosen childlessness is a growing trend in our society. We have shows like Seinfeld where life goes on without children appearing at any time whatsoever. Um, Some couples choose this option for selfish reasons. Uh, Research shows that childless couples are wealthier and happier than parents, but that's not what I'm talking about. Is it valid for a married Christian couple to decide they never want to have children? I think it's possible that there would be some godly reasons for using contraceptives to avoid having any Christian, any children in Christian marriage. I think it would be unusual. Uh, it would include serious medical consequences to the pregnancy, either for the mother or the child. Um, I think you'd have to think about it very carefully. But the important thing for those who make this decision is to be clear on their motives and intentions to make sure they honour God. We need to look at each situation individually. And sadly, in our fallen world, some couples will desire to have families, but it won't be possible. So there are several reasons why Christian couples may decide not to have children. And because the reason for childlessness is not always clear, we must be careful not to assume that we know and judge those couples uh, because they are usually in, uh, in some type of painful situation. So in summary, most Christian marriages will be open to children at some point. Use of contraceptives in principle is permissible if used for the timing of children. Uh, this is endorsed uh, by most Protestant churches. So use of contraceptives needs to be a prayerful joint decision between husband and wife, but you also need to realise that God may overrule your plans. No contraceptive is 100% effective. We need to realise that when we become sexually active, pregnancy is always a possible outcome. If you're not prepared to fulfil your duty as a parent, you shouldn't get married and have sex. Now, if we accept that contraceptive use can be ethically permissible for Christians, our next question relates to whether our choice of contraceptive is morally important. Answering this question is necessary to help us judge whether our actions will be pleasing to God. And to answer this question, we need to go back and learn more of the science. 
women of children, childbearing age will usually produce an egg every month, which comes from the ovary and is released into the fallopian tube, as I showed you um, in the last talk. It, it's released into the fallopian tube, travels down towards the uterus. The process of the egg being released uh, from the ovary is called ovulation. And during sexual intercourse, sperm is released from the man's penis and travels from the vagina through the cervix into the womb and into the fallopian tubes. If there's an egg in that fallopian tube, fertilisation can take place. And then um, after fertilisation, the embryo travels down to the uterus where it can implant after about a week. We also need to clarify some terminology about contraceptives. The, de the definition of contraceptive uh, in the Oxford Dictionary is um, a device or drug used to prevent a woman becoming pregnant. Now, it would be reasonable to think that the word contraception, which means against conception, um, would mean something that uh, stops the first step of pregnancy to keep the egg and the sperm from joining together. That would be reasonable to think. Um, but in fact, uh, these days, that's not the case. When the oral contraceptive pill was being developed in the 1950s, there was some confusion about how it actually worked. Gynecologists suspected that the hormone contraceptives didn't prevent the sperm from fertilising the egg, the classic definition of contraception, but that they terminated the life of the embryo by preventing the embryo for, from implanting in the wall of the uterus which you may remember occurs at the end of the first week. Since that would mean that the interference occurred after fertilisation, after conception, they realised that some people would say that that constitutes an abortion. The solution to this problem was to artificially move the point at which conception took place. They worked out a way of getting around the fact that these drugs might cause a termination of pregnancy by changing the definition of when a pregnancy starts. Because if there was no pregnancy, you couldn't say that you were causing an abortion. In 1972, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology deliberately changed the definition of conception so that instead of a pregnancy starting at fertilisation, it began with implantation in the uterus, which occurs about a week later. Conception then was equated with implantation instead of fertilisation. The purpose of this change was to widen the contraceptive market it gave them a whole extra week in which drugs could work and still be marketed as contraceptives. And an international group of obstetricians and gynaecologists did the same thing in 1985. Now, they weren't experts in the early development of embryos. People, those sorts of experts are called embryologists. Um, so, even though they didn't have the authority to make that change, the, that change influences us to this day. The change is not in any embryolo embryology textbook. 
uh, they still equate conception with fertilisation. But if you look in medical textbooks, they say conception is implantation. I actually went through all the dictionaries of embryology and medicine in our university library, and sure enough, this difference is the case in everyone that I looked at. So now, if you study medicine, you're taught that conception means implantation and that it occurs uh, a week after fertilisation, and that is the point at which they say human life begins. That's why it's influenced the thinking of so many doctors. I, when I spoke to uh, Christian obstetricians and gynaecologists, and they weren't aware of this history, they didn't realise how this artificial change had been made, they just accepted it. Uh, without thinking. And I expect that's why the introduction of IVF uh, wasn't more contested, is if all the Christian doctors are taught that life begins at implantation, of course they won't be concerned about human beings being grown in a laboratory for a few days. Okay, so under the new definition of contraception, any device that stops a pregnancy up till the time the embryo implants in the mother's uterus will be labelled as a contraceptive. No drug will be called an abortifacient, that means an abortion-causing drug, unless it acts after implantation. Now, whether the oral contraceptive pill does cause an abortion, I'll talk about later. Um, but uh, the point is that we've had this artificial change of definitions um, that occurred that's still influencing marketing of contraceptives. So in ethical terms, we have two categories of contraceptives. We have those that prevent fertilisation, the classic meaning of a contraceptive, and those that cause an early abortion. And this explains some of the media confusion. A physician may say a drug is not an abortifacient, meaning in that statement that uh, the drug doesn't act after implantation, but he's using his own definition of when life begins. That statement would not be true for someone who used the traditional definition of conception starting at fertilisation. Um, so are we all clear on that? It's a bit hard to believe, but that's the way things developed. Now, if as Christians we hold that pregnancy begins at fertilisation, we won't want to use any so-called contraceptive that works after fertilisation. We need to separate the two categories so we know which is permissible and which is not. Those that act before fertilisation will be ethically permissible and those that act after fertilisation won't be. Now this sounds easy, but in fact it's not as easy as it sounds. Because in order to separate the two groups of contraceptives, you need to know exactly how they work. And surprisingly, there's still a lot of contraceptives where their method of action isn't fully understood. So I'll take you through this and show you what I mean. But before I start, although I'm a physician, I don't want you to think that I'm advising you today on which contraceptive would be best for you individually. I'm talking about ethics, and when you choose a contraceptive, there's more involved than just the ethics. Things like side effects and your own medical history um, will be important, and you need to discuss this with your own physician. 
Which of the ethical options suits you best needs to be decided individually. Now, I know um, from experience that finding out this information um, can be very difficult. It took me a whole year to write the contraceptive chapter in my book. Um, so I don't want anyone to feel guilty about past choices. It can be very hard to know. Even a lot of Christian doctors um, don't know this. One of my students is preparing some handouts for Christian doctors to use. Um, but we can only make our decisions on the information we have at the time. So we won't feel guilty about our past decisions. Let's just try and make better choices in the future. Those of us who want to honour God with our choice of contraceptive will not want to use one that interrupts the development of a human embryo. Human embryos are made in the image of God and are morally significant. We were all once embryos. However, we were not all once individual sperm or egg. Sperm and eggs on their own are not made in the image of God and therefore do not have moral significance. Uh, it doesn't matter in ethical terms what happens to an egg or a sperm. We've seen that the, the Methodist God um, organised it involves the loss of a lot of sperm before you get an embryo. Um, we need to keep this in mind as we look how contraceptives work. Okay, so it's ethically permissible for Christians um, to use a contraceptive that stopped the egg and the sperm from coming into contact with each other. Now, there are a couple of ways that this can be organised. You can put up a physical obstruction so that they just can't get to each other, or you can get rid of the egg, or you can get rid of the sperm. So the first... Um, ones, uh, the first category we'll look at are called barrier contraceptives and these um, create a physical obstruction between the sperm and the egg. So we've got um, cervical caps, female condoms, I actually didn't know about them until I researched the book but apparently people use them, diaphragm sponges and male condoms. You can stop the production of eggs this is usually done with hormones, um, and although there are a wide group of hormones that have some impact on ovulation or the release of the egg, not all of them um, are effective enough to be sure the egg is never there. But these are the ones where viable suppression of ovulation occurs with progestin-only injections like DMPA or NetN, and there are some examples there. And um, also um, the Implanon implant has a high enough dose of progestin that uh, you don't have to worry about any eggs being there. Uh, because if you don't have an egg, there's no, even uh, if the sperm are around, you're not going to get an embryo. You can also try to reduce the sperm um, being around. Now, some people think, here we go. Sorry, this is very, very sensitive, this. Um, we can try and reduce the number of sperm. So we've got spermicides, which are toxic to sperm. Um, the withdrawal technique, which we know has um, been practised for a long time. And uh, natural family planning, which keeps sperm out of the way. Sp as I said, spermicides are toxic to sperm. Um, they're usually used uh, by putting them in the vagina. 
just increasing the hostility of the environment for sperm. Natural family planning works by avoiding intercourse at a woman's fertile time. So um, that you monitor the woman's body. Uh, there are various ways through body temperature, the viscosity of the mucus, um, a few other things that can tell you um, when she's ovulating so you don't have sex during that fertile time. Um, that's sort of, uh, it's also called uh, periodic abstinence, the Billings method, um, the two-day method. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of names for them, but the, the main two categories are uh, lactation and amenorrhea method, which is for people who are breastfeeding, and uh, natural family planning sort of cover most of them. Um, and then uh, the withdrawal uh, the withdrawal method just plans to keep the sperm out. And uh, there are some male contraceptives under development, um, but they're still at the research stage, though I know that some women think the only true contraceptive for a man would be one that involves nine months of pregnancy and labour. <laughs> anyway, these will all be ethical options for Christians. Now, some, they're, they're not as effective as each other, as you can see. If, if a couple has regular sex and no contraceptive use over a one-year period, 85% of them will become pregnant. Um, and, and that's normal, even though we're told that you should become pregnant within a year. Uh, in fact, that's not true. And sometimes what people think is infertility is, in fact, impatience. But uh, you'll see that there's different levels of effectiveness. So you do need to be aware that um, these things need to be kept in mind. But if you're having sex with your life partner, you've already decided who you want to be the parent of your child, and it's not always uh, a disaster. Um, but they aren't all the same reliability. Now, methods that won't be okay are the ones that harm the embryo once it's formed. You can damage the embryo after it's formed uh, in two sort of main ways. You can stop it while it's traveling down the fallopian tube on its way to the uterus, or you can stop it from actually attaching to the womb because that's how it's going to get its nutrients to continue developing. IUDs, that's not actually a picture of an IUD, I'm sorry, I put the wrong one in, I didn't have my glasses on. But, um, but it's similar. It's an understandable mistake. Can you believe it? We still don't know how IUDs actually work, even though they've been away, around for so long. They appear to create an inflammatory response through the genital tract of the woman, which is quite toxic to the embryo. It's thought that the body realises it's a foreign substance in the body and, and has an immune reaction uh, to the IUD, which sets up this um, inflammatory exudate throughout the uh, genital tract. So uh, when the... It's, it was originally thought that it just was very toxic to the sperm and stopped the sperm um, from getting to the egg. But, but women have had um, tubal pregnancies uh, on, with IUDs in place, so we know that sometimes um, the sperm does get through and it, uh, this environment is very toxic to the embryo and can kill the embryo before it reaches the womb. 
um, it's an environment in which an embryo just can't survive. Therefore, all intrauterine devices and intrauterine systems will be problematic. The intrauterine systems are the ones where there are also hormones implanted in the IUD, which um, increases its efficacy in terms of overall contraception, but it's not enough hormone to stop ovulation. So the way it works is still basically the way any IUD will work. There are also drugs um, which stop the embryo from implanting in the uterus. This would include those drugs that thin the lining of the endometrium. Um, the, the endometrium is the lining of the uterus, which thickens every month um, uh, to provide the environment where the embryo can attach and start getting its nutrition from the mother. And uh, these drugs thin the lining so that um, the endometrium is unable to support the embryo. So it's possible that an egg could be present, be fertilised, then be unable to implant in the womb because the lining's too thin. So examples would be uh, lower progesterone drugs, such as the ones in that, that first category. Um, then we have um, omelexaphine, and, and there are some pills which were actually developed uh, with the express purpose of creating an abortion, such as RU486, which uh, you've probably heard of. Um, it's also known by its um, generic name of mifeprix, mifepristine. And um, I'm, I'm not familiar with all the American terms for more your drugs, so I'm generally using um, generic terms. But um, if there's a particular drug you're interested in, I can give you a website where you can look them up. Uh, but any of the, the so-called so abortion pills that they give you um, at uh, abortion clinics, um, some people use abortion as a contraceptive. Uh, sadly, it causes uh, great trauma to the women involved, but they definitely would not be ethically acceptable. Then we have a group of contraceptives that we can't categorise because we're not sure how they act. This, contain, this list contains most of the hormonal contraceptives. I'll illustrate the problem using the example of the um, oral contraceptive pill because it's the most widely used and the most controversial example in Christian circles. It's easier to understand if you're familiar with the 28... Oh, this is the caution needed. Yep. Um, yes, so you can see that's, that's a big list and it includes the most uh, popular um, contraceptives in the world. So uh, we need to understand uh, this list. Now, it's easier to understand if you, if you know about the 28-day cycle of the female. The changes that occur in the ovary each cycle or each 28 days for the woman are aimed at producing an egg for possible fertilisation by a sperm and also the preparation of the endometrium or uterus lining for implantation of the embryo so that, that um, an embryo can be formed and then a baby can develop. So during the first half of the cycle, an egg develops in the follicle in the ovary, um, as you remember we saw in the cross-section picture, 
And uh, that develops in response to hormones released in the body. The follicle increases in size until the time of ovulation when it releases the egg into the fallopian tube in response to a hormone surge. So we get the hormone surge and then the egg is released from the uh, ovary. The hormone surge also works on the endometrium to thicken it in preparation for implantation of the embryo. If fertilization doesn't occur, the hormone secretion stops and the endometrial lining sheds, resulting in the monthly menstrual period for the woman. Then the whole cycle starts again. Um, so over and over again, through a woman's uh, fertile life, uh, one egg, men create um, an, a full batch of sperm every three months, but women are born with the number of eggs they're ever going to have and they just release one at a time each month. And God set up this whole system so her body is ready um, for uh, the development of a child uh, month after month. Now, while there are many formulations of the pill, they all work in much the same way. And there are three important methods of action. It's, remember the video that we saw. It suppresses ovulation by stopping the release of the hormones um, that trigger the ovulation so no egg is released. So the, the egg just stays in the ovary. It doesn't go into the fallopian tube. It inhibits movement of sperm through the cervix by thickening that mucus. Remember all those poor sperm trying to get through the mucus and a lot of them got stuck. It makes the, the mucus even more sticky so they can't get through. But, and it also uh, stops the hormone surge um, so you don't get thickening of the endometrium. Um, uh, so the, the endometrium will be thinner and hostile to the embryo. And here lies the crux of the debate. It's been argued that if the pill failed to prevent ovulation and an egg is released, and if the pill fails to thicken the cervical mucus and a sperm gets through, and if an embryo is formed, and if the pill made the lining of the uterus thin and hostile, so the embryo couldn't implant, you would have an early abortion because the embryo wouldn't be able to continue to develop and it would just pass out of the woman's body with the monthly menstrual flow. This is the argument used to say that the oral contraceptive pill is an abortifacient or that it causes abortions. And this has been widely published in Christian circles. However, there is an opposing argument that goes like this. If the pill fails to suppress ovulation and an egg is released, and if the pill fails to thicken the cervical mucus so a sperm gets through and travels up the fallopian tube to the, to the egg, and if the sperm successfully fertilises the egg so an embryo is formed, then the embryo will be able to implant in the endometrium 
because the hormone surge that started the that allowed the release of the egg also acts to thicken the endometrium. So you would have an endometrium that's able to support the embryo. So you wouldn't have an abortion, you'd have an unplanned pregnancy. Either the pill works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, then you would think that all three components of its action would fail and the embryo will survive. This is the reasoning of people who argue that the oral contraceptive pill does not cause an abortion. Now, there are pro-life committed Christian physicians on both sides of this debate. We just don't have the research evidence at this stage of what the endometrium looks like if someone who regularly takes the pill ovulates so that an embryo is created. Nobody has done that research. We just don't know for sure. It's unlikely that research will ever happen. The only people who could afford that type of a study are the pharmaceutical companies. And they're quite happy that the research hasn't been done and we don't know how it works because it means they have potentially a much larger market. Now this is difficult for committed Christians who want to make sure that they protect human lives from the time of fertilization. So this is what we're left with. There is no evidence that the method in the central list are abortifacient. But there's also no evidence that they're not. At the moment, we're at a stalemate with no definite information available to decide the issue one way or another. Now, the people who first uh, brought up this idea that the, the pill was an abortifacient um, cited some research to justify their position. And I've looked at that research, and personally, I don't think taking the oral contraceptive pill is a problem. I don't think the abortifacient case is logical or supported by the facts that have been used um, to sort of been held up to support it. But we each need to decide for ourselves because this is an important issue that needs to be decided in accordance with our conscience. Um, yes, I, I, we, we don't, I, I don't think it's a logical argument that it causes abortions, but as I said, I don't have proof that it doesn't. How, however, the other side don't have evidence that it does, so we just don't know. Before I finish, I thought I'd just quickly touch on emergency contraception. Um, because while you wouldn't expect this to be needed uh, by married Christian couples, uh, contraceptive accidents do happen, and you may have godly reasons why you're on contraception and may think to use this. Uh, emergency contraception works on the premise that if you have unprotected sex, you can avoid pregnancy if you work uh, if you act within 72 hours by taking a pill or having a copper IUD inserted. Um, I think most people in our society think that's quite a responsible thing to do if you have unprotected sex. And uh, it's quite standard in, in rape clinics for women to be offered these pills um, if, uh, if they've been raped. And um, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's often called the morning after pill, but, but they work over, most of them will work over 72 hours. If you think back to the reasons um, for sex in marriage, once again, we are interested in any drugs that work 
before fertilisation, but not afterwards. Um, we have the same problem. It's not always clear how these drugs work. We all know um, that the morning after pills and the copper IUD can affect implantation to some extent. So it's all dependent on whether or not there's going to be an egg there that can be fertilised. Because if there's not going to be an embryo, it doesn't matter what happened to the endometrium. But if you may have an embryo, you want it to be um, thick enough that the embryo can implant. So um, the, the copper IUD works the same way as any other IUD and it creates this hostile environment where an embryo couldn't survive if it was formed, so we know the copper ID won't be an ethical choice according to the Bible. The way the other pills work, and I include Plan B, Ella and Previn in this group, is by delaying ovulation, delaying the release of the egg. So if you knew where you were in your monthly cycle as a woman, and most, peop most people don't, um, if your date of ovulation was still a few days away, you could take those pills and push the timing of ovulation back, giving the sperm enough time to die before the egg is released so that you avoid that possibility of an embryo um, forming. This would be an ethical choice because in delaying the release of the egg, um, you are just avoiding the whole um, creation of the embryo scenario. Um, you can go to a physician and have your hormone levels measured and find out where you are in your uh, cycle. So if you went the morning after and had your hormone levels measured, you get them back in time to meet that 72-hour window and you could take um, the, um, the drug and still um, have that pushing back of ovulation quite safely and avoid the creation of an embryo. The details are in my first book if you want to see how that is done. Um, as I mentioned previously, why we act is as important to God as what we do. So as a Christian, you should go through the act of finding out where you are in your cycle before deciding to take these drugs. Um, that's the only way you can be sure you're making an ethical choice and not causing an early abortion. This is a big topic and I've given you a lot of information, but in the end the decision is for you and your spouse in consultation with your physician. We should not violate our conscience, which Romans 14 tells us is wrong. Um, you don't have to use contraceptives if you decide in your marriage that that's what you would like to do and trust it all to God. And, um, but I'd just like to finish by saying, if we remember the privilege of childbearing which God may give us, choosing a contraceptive should not be a burden. So why does it cause some people so much angst? Our society is more affluent than any society before us. But sadly, our increased affluence seems to make some people more selfish rather than less. We can now see growth of a way of life in our society, as I've mentioned, that excludes children entirely and allows adults to live in a completely self-centered way. And in such communities, children may not be seen so much as a gift as a threat. The Christian writer Catherine Blanchard has suggested that in modern society, children are becoming to be seen more as consumer choices in need of an explanation. 
This attitude reduces our ability to welcome children as God has welcomed us. In a perfect world, we would have many children and greet them all with relaxed joy. This is not to say that thoughtful use of contraceptives to time the arrival of our children is wrong, but we need to remember who's really in charge. I'd like to leave you with the words from English theologian Christopher Ashe. If the Creator declares procreation a blessing given to us to enable us to participate in the privilege of being stewards in this world, we ought to value this as gift and blessing. It may be, and often is, an alarming blessing because we're not sure if we can cope with it, an inconvenient blessing impacting deeply on our lifestyles, and a costly blessing but it is to be esteemed as blessing, not curse. This ought to be our fundamental attitude with regard to procreation. So my prayer is that in amongst deciding which contraceptive is best for you, you find the time to welcome whatever children God blesses you with. Thank you.